Hi there. Thank you for joining us on the Redeemer Church Podcast. Here at Redeemer, we exist to see Christ exalted in our church, community, and world. It is our mission to lead people into the presence of God, devotion to His Word, authentic fellowship with others, and discovering their ministry. We hope that this podcast is just one of the ways you connect to God's presence this week. Let's check out this week's message. Good morning. I hope you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Speaking of Thanksgiving, we have made it past Thanksgiving, so Christmas music can abound. Adam sent out a text or an email uh, a couple weeks ago uh, encouraging staff to blare their Christmas music uh, throughout the month of November. I never responded. I'm the type of person that holds out. There's a tradition to uphold. Thanksgiving comes first. We celebrate the holiday. Then we get into the Christmas season. I hear his moaning from, from here. So this is my public declaration so you can all hear it. Christmas season has started. We've made it through Thanksgiving. I heard an amen. Thank you. Um, so decorations are getting hung everywhere. My family just came back from a vacation in the Ozark Mountains, which was beautiful. And it was amazing to me the change in Tulsa from having left a week ago to having come back. Christmas lights everywhere, Christmas trees in the front windows. Yet here at Redeemer, instead of talking about the Christmas season, we talk about the season of Advent. And many years ago, when I first started working at a church that followed the liturgical calendar, I always used to wonder, why is it that we're talking about Advent when the rest of the world is celebrating Christmas? It made no sense to me. It just felt a little bit off. Fun fact, did you know that for the church, the Christmas season doesn't start until the day of Christmas? And it goes for 12 days. It's called Christmastide. And so there is a season of Christmas in the liturgy. It's where the song, the 12 days of Christmas, actually comes from. Uh, It's an elongated celebration. And at Redeemer, we celebrate the season of Advent instead of the season of Christmas for a very important reason. Advent means arrival. As such, this season celebrates the arrival of the Messiah, But where Advent is different from, say, the traditional Christmas season that we all celebrate, some of you starting back in like October, I don't know, Uh, but after Thanksgiving, uh, that season that we celebrate, uh, but where Advent is different is that as we celebrate Jesus' first arrival, we are in great anticipation of his second arrival. It's a reminder that Jesus is coming back. So we don't just celebrate his birth, we anticipate his return. After all, in Acts 1, when Jesus ascended into heaven, the angels promised his disciples Jesus would return the same way that he left. It says, this same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you have watched him go. Since this promise, in the church, there has been kind of a pregnant pause, an anticipation And this anticipation gives way to hope, which is our first theme, our first conversation in our Advent series. Now, there's much confusion about this word hope. In in the culture we live in, it's, it's very wordy. We have words for everything. We have synonyms for everything. And so it's not... Um, alarming or not surprising that we get some words confused or we start to make word synonyms with other words that they're not. 
For instance, with the word hope, we have started to turn it into a synonym for wish for. I hope for and I wish for in our culture has become the same thing. Or even like an I pray for. However, they're not synonyms, actually. There's a substantial difference between wish and hope. And so that we could appreciate that difference, uh, I thought we would look at the definitions from Webster's Dictionary at both of them. Let's start with the word wish. To wish is to have a desire for something that is usually unattainable. Say this with me. Usually unattainable. Usually unattainable. Now let's take a look at the definition for hope. To hope is to desire with the expectation of obtainment or fulfillment. Say with me, expectation. There's a big difference, right? Usually something that's unattainable to expectation. They're not the same. Wish is a desire for something that we kind of would like to happen, but we just don't think that it actually can. So we need some sort of special intervention to make this come true. Hope, however, is something that we put great expectation. We know from a variety of factors that what we're longing for is bound to happen. Growing up, I had a wonderful childhood. And one of the things that my parents made sure that I could anticipate was Christmas morning. They made it special every year. And while I was growing up, there were many years that we did not have a lot of money. So my parents would always save to make sure Christmas morning was something special. And it was special every year. This was a marker of my childhood. So over time, I began to have joyful expectation of what Christmas morning would look like. And for our purposes, a better way to talk about what my parents did was they instilled within me hope. I knew Christmas morning would be special. Hope does not come without a successful track record. Because my parents did this over and over again, it gave way to hope for me. Because to have hope, we must first have faith. We'll get into that in a little bit. First, let's take a look at one of the passages which inspired much hope in the Israelites during their time of exile. And it's a passage at the end, at least of the passage, that's very familiar to us, especially in the Christmas season. And what I want for us to do, I'm gonna read the whole passage. We normally pick up towards the end. I'm gonna read the whole passage because all of it was not only the hope of the Israelites, but it's the hope for us as well. It can be found in Isaiah 1, or nine, one to seven, I'm sorry. Turn with me there in your Bible or your Bible app. It'll be up on the screen so you can follow along that way too. The early portion of Isaiah is written to a community that was in great distress. The Assyrian army was on a rampage. They were looking for world denomination and they were doing a fantastic job at it. They were coming up what they call the Fertile Crescent and making their way to Israel. So Israel has seen the devastation of the Assyrian army. They know what's lurking around the corner and they're feeling the weight of the Assyrian army to the north of them. And by the time Isaiah 9 is written, it's very likely that the Northern Kingdom was already under siege and there was a fear of exile looming. It's under these circumstances that God through the prophet Isaiah speaks hope to his people. I'll read it for us. 
Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of the Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. No doubt, the last two verses in this passage are the ones that are most familiar to us. But I don't want us to rush into those verses just yet. The first five verses there are the ones to which the Israelites clung. It was their immediate hope for salvation out of their present circumstances, out of the warring Assyrian army, and then later out of the warring Babylonian army, and then later out of the Roman empire. They clung to those first five verses. God made a promise to his people that the pain and suffering that they were enduring would come to an end that their weapons that were used for war could be tossed into a fire to be burned. They would never need them again. This promise was coming at the height of their suffering. Sons and daughters losing their fathers in battle, wives becoming widows, people being exiled into a foreign land. This is the backdrop of this passage in Isaiah 9. And because of God's faithfulness to them in, in the past, because of the way that he worked through Abraham and Moses and Joshua and David, the Israelites took God at his word and believed in his promise in Isaiah 9. So they began looking for the Messiah. And understandably, they began looking for an earthly king who would deliver them from their suffering, that would make good on this promise for them to be delivered from the hands of their enemy, one that would enable them, as Isaiah promised earlier in Isaiah 2, to bend their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Now, prophetic revelation is a tricky thing. I don't know if you've ever read the book of Isaiah through in its entirety. It's a hard read. It's a bit confusing. So is Ezekiel, so is Jeremiah, so is most of prophetic literature. It's just a tricky thing. In many respects, prophetic literature is if we're driving up to the Rocky Mountains. I know some of you have made this drive from Tulsa, and you get to see the mountains off in the distance. I've only gotten to fly in, and I've seen them from Colorado or from Denver and looked at them. And when you see them off in the distance, they're majestic, right? They're beautiful. But your eye can behold everything that they see. So you can see a far wide range and you kind of don't get the full appreciation for what they are until you get in the middle of the Rockies. And you realize for many miles, 
Forward and behind and to the left and to the right, there are these towering, monstrous mountains everywhere. And you see a bigger picture. You see grand majesty. You see what is the monster of the Rocky Mountains. And prophetic literature is kind of the same way. The Israelites were told the ending. They could see the whole range. But from a distance, they could not fully appreciate or understand the magnitude of what was being communicated to them. On the front end, it would take 700 years for the Christ to be born. And then what they did not realize at that point from this message, and what we sometimes have a hard time wrestling with, is that it took over 2,000 years plus from verse 6 in Isaiah 9 to verse 7. So from the child being born to the establishment of his government in his return, right? And so that's hard to see through. Understandably, the Israelites are looking for an earthly ruler. Between the child being born and the consummation of that child's kingdom was the hope for the Israelites. And it's the hope for us today. It's the consummation of that kingdom, of that child's kingdom, that promise in Isaiah 9, verse 6, that is the Christian hope. Christian hope celebrates the birth of Christ in great anticipation for Christ's return. Because here's what the Israelites could not see. That the promise for them of the end of war was not the end of their war, the end, but it was the end of all war. It was the returning to right, not just of the Israelites, but of all humanity. Of the kind of recreation, so to speak. This bringing back this great relationship between God and humanity, this closeness. It was kind of this undoing of all of the things that the original sin had done. It was so much grander than what they could have ever imagined. This is the Christian hope. And one scholar talked about Christian hope like this. Hope seeks to liberate humanity from all things that dehumanize it, act against needless suffering, and participate in God's de-demonizing of the world. Christian hope is not about going to heaven when we die. Yes, we can have that hope and we can look forward to that. But an even greater reality is the Christian hope. This all sad things coming untrue, as Tolkien has put it. It is the reversal of pain, suffering, and death that came through Adam and Eve's sin. It's the promise of the resurrection as Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 23, hear these words. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes those who belong to him. That is the Christian hope. That is the reason for the Advent season, the anticipation of when he comes, of when Christ returns. Earlier I said to have hope, we must first have faith. 
My faith in my parents came from their day-to-day provision, their day-to-day love, their day-to-day nurturing and care of me. Their love and their support developed a faith in me, a trust in me. It put me into a position that when they promised they were going to do something, like have an excellent Christmas morning, I could hope in that. I could know with great expectation that that would come true because of their track record. And we, over time, develop a faith in God in that same type of a way, and our faith transitions us into hope. And here are some of the ways that we develop our faith. First, it's through the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. That as the Holy Spirit grabs onto our lives and our heart and our mind, he transforms us to be able to understand the truth that is the gospel, to understand the care and love and concern that our Father has for us and the way that he is present with us. Even now, Emmanuel, the Holy Spirit, illuminates us so that we can begin to cling on to those truths. The second way we build faith is through his word. This is a great history of God's faithfulness. Even in the weird and difficult pages to understand of the Old Testament, we watch God acting faithfully with his people throughout and standing through the tests of time from the first page to the last page. We get glimpses of God's care for his people. Over 6,000 plus years of history of faithfulness. And then how we begin to build more faith is our personal relationship with him. Those moments where we know that it was God's hand acting in our lives in whatever moment, in whatever place, in whatever season, that we cannot deny his activity. And we hold on to that individually and personally. And through these various different forms and many more, we develop a faith-filled relationship in God that leads way to hope. So that when God says he's going to do something, we respond with yes and amen. As our trust goes and and goes, as our trust, wow, I'll get that out there. As our trust in God grows, so does our confidence in his promises. But there's still another very important reason for us to have hope. The first part of Isaiah 9, 6 has already taken place. We're seeing things work out. It says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. This has happened. Jesus has already completed his redeeming work. His job has been finished. He has already been raised from the dead. He's already been raised from the dead. This is exciting stuff. It's the Christian hope, the first fruits of the resurrection. Karl Barth, one of the most significant theologians of the 20th century, put it this way. Before I get into this, a quick warning about the quote I'm going to read. Can you take it off the screen? No cheating for them. A quick warning about the quote I'm about to read. If you love English grammar, you will love this quote. If you do not like English grammar, you're going to be very mad at me for a little bit. I'm a math-wired guy. Uh, We'll get through this together. We'll walk through it piece by piece. We'll understand it together, I promise. But it's really important. Here's what Bart said. The Christian perfect is not an imperfect, but the rightly understood perfect has the force of the future. Every math person, echo with me. What? What does that mean? 
The Christian perfect is not an imperfect, but the rightly understood perfect has the force of the future. Let's do a quick English grammar lesson, okay? The perfect tense means action that has already been accomplished at the time of speaking. It's completed action. It's done. The imperfect tense describes something in the past that is ongoing or incomplete. It still has a resolution that needs to take place. Perfect tense, completed action. Imperfect tense, incompleted action. Future tense, well, even us math people, we can understand this. Things that will happen in the future, right? That one's straightforward. What Bart is saying here is that our redemption has already occurred. It's past action. This is why we can have hope. Here's an example of how this works. You math people like me, I needed this example. It kind of the light bulb all went on. This is how this hope works. This is how completed action works. A couple of months ago, Mitch Jost, Chris LeMaster, and I cut a large tree down in his front yard. That was a fun experience, let me tell you. There's a weird and dangerous moment when cutting a tree. It's right after the tree has been cut and right before the tree falls down. It's a very dangerous, strange portion of time. My dad and I were arborists. We did this a lot. At Mitch's house, things went a little awry in that space. So the tree started to go the wrong direction. So we had to take our rope, hook it to his truck, pull it over, and get it to go where we wanted it to go. It was a mess. I'm glad we're all alive, Mitch. You are too. <laughs> I see you shaking your head. Um, so here's the, the reality. In that moment, the tree has already been cut. It will fall. There's a future action going to play, take place. The tree will fall down. It has no choice. It has been cut. There's no doubting this fact. It's a completed action with future consequences. Our redemption is the same. Jesus has already lived the perfect life, took our place on the cross, and he has already risen again. That has all been accomplished. Therefore, there is no question about Christ's returning rule. The government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government, there will be no end. This is not a question. It will happen. He's already completed it. Friends, we get to participate in that glorious reign for all eternity. That is the Christian hope. That's what the Advent season is all about. Now, do you remember how I said that moment between the tree being cut and it falling down is dangerous? Yes? With a tree between those two points, you can get crushed. There's something a bit similar happening between these two points for us. Listen to what theologian Jürgen Moulton has to say about our faith whenever it develops into hope. Faith, wherever it develops into hope, causes not rest but unrest, not patience but impatience. It does not calm the unquiet heart, but is itself this unquiet heart in man. Those who hope in Christ can no longer put up with reality as it is, but begin to, but begin to suffer under it, to contradict it. Peace with God means conflict with the world. Here's what he's talking about. As Christians, we recognize and embrace the completed action that is Christ's reign and rule. There are many in this world that do not. And because of that, we write into a situation of conflict. 
where we're obeying a king that is on his throne that they cannot yet see. And it creates pressure, it creates issues, it creates conflict. As our faith develops in hope, we begin to think differently. We begin to act differently. We begin to yearn for the promised kingdom to arrive in such a way that we talked about in our last series. We long for this reality because we have hope in what Christ has accomplished. We want it and we want it now. However, because Jesus has not yet returned, we have to wait. And Allison said this morning, we're not that great at waiting all the time. And so it's in this space that we get to enjoy the community of one another. It's in this space that is the dangerous space for us. So how do we avoid getting metaphorically crushed by the tree? The first, and I've hinted to this, is we develop strong community with other believers. This church body, these people to your left and right, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through our connection to each other and the Holy Spirit's connection with all of us, we lean into a space that we are encouraged when life gets difficult, when we experience this conflict and rubbing of realities of Christ being on his throne and the world not recognizing it. We also must share the hope of Jesus Christ with the world because it is good news. It is completed action. It is news. We're informing the world of what is the reigning Christ. We give them hope in this way, but it also reminds us of where our values are as we speak the truth. It helps us to reorient and to realign. And then, especially in the season of Advent, we hope we hope deeply because Christ has already completed his work. It is finished. We can stand in confident expectation that he will return. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we stand in awe of you and who you are and our love for you, and your love for us. Father, we thank you for Christ's coming. We thank you that we get to celebrate this little baby who is our rescuer. And Lord, in this season of waiting, in this space, we ask that you would give us patience and joy and confidence and most of all, hope, Lord, knowing that the job is done and we are just waiting for the outworking of this completed action. Enable us to be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. Once again, thank you for listening to the Redeemer Church podcast. To stay connected to all that God is doing here at Redeemer, visit our website at RedeemerTulsa.org or connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Have a blessed week.